1: For the first time in the history of nothing personal, I couldn't think of what the nothing personal word of the day would be. I had two great choices. One was contagion and one was coronavirus. I'm going contagion because I love movies. And where else can you see a movie where Gwyneth Paltrow is patient zero in an outbreak that's not really monkey related goes all around the world? Well, we had our first episode of Contagion. Is it an episode? No, that would be a movie or a TV series. Our first case of coronavirus came to Chicago today after a second one in Washington. Meanwhile, they shut down a whole village in China. You and I would think of a village, that's 200 people, right? This is a city that has like 11 million people. You can't get in, you can't get out. The question is, will coronavirus spread? My first suggestion is use your elbow to cough and sneeze. One time. Second, wear gloves, wear a mask. Let's not get this everywhere. It's contagious. Eli Manning. You know, when you work in a sports studio or a network like CBS Sports HQ, you're in a position to hear a lot of debates, a lot of people talking about what is the topic of the day, not the word of the day, the topic of the day. And for the last few days, it's been Eli Manning. For the life of me, I can't understand how anyone would think that Eli Manning is not a Hall of Famer. To me, it's clear as day, not because I'm a Giants fan. Because anyone who has an 11-year stretch at his prime where you can win two Super Bowls, get two Super Bowl MVPs, throw for over 300 touchdowns, around 200 interceptions, 48,000 yards, you're a Hall of Famer, period. I don't want to talk about that. Everyone's debating it. Everyone's got his or her own view. I want to know what the role is when Eli Manning takes the stage, gives a press conference, talks about the fact he's retiring. I like retirement press conferences because they're not in uniform. They actually dress up. It's like when they first sign and they talk about their future. There was even a Jeter comment wondering whether one of the reporters was the one who didn't vote for Jeter. That was a light moment. I like that. But the real question is, as an organization, What were we doing when we had a situation where you've got someone as part of your organization who is no longer going to be active, but you need to support him in his Hall of Fame candidacy? I spent years with the Marlins trying to get Andre Dawson be as helpful as I could to get him into the Hall of Fame, which he finally was inducted into in 2010. But as an organization, we took it very seriously because it's not a money issue. It's a emotional issue. And isn't that interesting? It's the only case with the Hall of Fame where you actually use emotion in business. You want something for your player or a member of your organization so badly that you're going to campaign. You're going to allocate resources from your PR department. You're going to call writers and talk to them about Andre Dawson. You're going to help Andre speak to people in the game and make sure his profile is high enough. Are the Giants going to do the same thing with Eli Manning? Are the Giants willing to stand behind their quarterback, who they so unceremoniously dumped and benched, even though they had re-signed him in favor of Daniel Jones, only brought him back when Jones got hurt, knowing that Manning was not even good enough to be a backup quarterback anymore? How hard is it to manage an aged superstar, someone who's defined your team for a decade, someone who took the field every single day? Cal Ripken, you may remember, someone who took the field every single day. The Iron Man, Eli Manning, in a much more violent sport, much more against the odds, took the field every day and represented his team. He even came up with what I think could be one of the top ten quotes of the year when he actually said, it's not, I'm once a giant, I'm always a giant, because that everybody says. Hey, once a giant, always a giant. What he said is, once a giant... For me, it's only a Giant. I wonder whether Tom Brady was listening. Because when I heard that quote, that's the first thing I thought of. I associate Eli Manning with the Giants, but it's not even the same neighborhood as the way we associate Tom Brady with the Patriots. And we heard Robert Kraft actually change his entire point of view, his entire narrative in the last day or two, when he went from, hey, who knows what'll be with Tom Brady, To now, I am hopeful Tom Brady will be a patriot. We had a great opportunity on Nothing Personal to talk about this. We had a great opportunity to talk about when someone needs to retire, when they don't want to retire because they believe they're still good enough. What's the difference between Tom Brady and Eli Manning? It's pretty simple. Tom Brady is the greatest of all time. Tom Brady is not Eli Manning. Tom Brady gets to choose when he leaves on his terms. The problem is the greater you are, the more, delir- the more delusional you are. The greater you are, the less you are able to see whether or not your abilities have in any way decreased. There is no way Robert Kraft can look at Tom Brady or Bill Belichick. There's no way that Gettleman or Mara can look at Eli Manning and not come to the same conclusion. We've got diminished skill set, but we've got a Hall of Fame name. Eli Manning will be in the Hall of Fame as a New York Giant, as he should be, because he is now the most associated player with one of the most storied and winningest franchises in all of New York sports. Well, New York sports, it's, uh, it's a good topic. As a matter of fact, we were talking before the show with Coca, the producer, and we were thinking, are we too heavy, New York, because we're talking Giants, because I wanted to talk about Manning. And now we're going to talk about the Knicks. And then after, I need to talk about and want to talk about the Mets. I don't think I've ever had a show three in a row at CBS Sports HQ, which you should be watching. If you're watching right now, you're watching on that. If you're listening to this, you should go to cbsports.com backslash live. It's free and we're streaming 24 hours. The best part about HQ is we're talking about big cities. We're talking about big stories. If you want to know what's going on in sports, you're coming to listen to us but three in a row on nothing personal, what could the Knicks have done? What would be so important that the Knicks are doing that actually would make me want to talk about them when they cause me so much pain as an organization? The love of my life is the New York Knicks, and they cause me so much pain, so little pleasure. And now I'm getting a little more, because I got to read an article yesterday that I want to share with all of you. The New York Knicks have hired an agency called translation agency. And it's run by a man named Steve Stout, well-known. He actually did the Nets. Can you imagine the Knicks are hiring a firm who rebranded the Nets and that awful gray court that they have? But this is not about rebranding or the look of it. The Knicks need to do a complete bottom-up and top-down true introspection in terms of how they run their team. And any person who's hired to assist the Knicks has to know one of the biggest problems is the owner, Jim Dolan. I have some familiarity with being blamed for things that are going on on the field. That was frankly half my career. Every time we lost a game in Florida or in Montreal, it was my fault as the team president. Every time we didn't draw big enough crowds, it was my fault. Well, I agree that I have something to do with it because I'm helping choose the team. I'm helping running the marketing and sales and finance, I'm in charge of all sorts of things. I get that. But remember, I was the president, not the owner. Do you think that Steve Stout of Translation Agency went in to meet with the New York Knicks and actually had the guts to say that the first thing he would do is have Jim Dolan sell the team? Well, I'm going to tell you a story of something I did. One day, many, many years ago, I had an interview to become the president of the New York Knicks. And what I remember most about that meeting is I was asked, what what would you do if you were team president of the New York Knicks? And I said, that's very simple. The first thing I would do is fire Isaiah Thomas, like right now today. I didn't quite get a call back from Steve Mills and the rest of the group in New York, though I'd made it maybe an extra round or two until I gave them my plan as what I would do running the Knicks. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to work for an organization who doesn't realize that the biggest problem can actually be taken care of. It's like when your arm is gangrene, but you refuse to take it off because you're just going to let it spread to the rest of your body and then die. It doesn't seem necessary to me. Just cut off the piece that's gangrenous. So the New York Knicks have a problem. Except Steve Stout with the translation agency wants a client. He wants to get paid. The problem I always had with hiring consultants is their first job was to get a client, was to have revenue, was to make sure their business would be a going concern. They know very well that the owner writes the checks of any sports organization. Do you think that Steve Stout is going to go into a meeting with the Knicks and say, yeah, we got to take care of Jimmy Dolan. No. So he did something which makes me know for a fact that this rebranding that they're doing will not work at all. He said in the article disclosing that he's working with the Knicks, we need to make sure that people understand that Jim Dolan has his own brand Madison Square Garden has its own brand, and the New York Knickerbockers have their own brand. I never know whether to say their or its with a team name. I see it written so many different ways. I always said the Marlins and our, the Marlins and their fans. Sometimes it's it, sometimes it's their. I'll ask my old grammar teacher, except he's not allowed back on campus. That's a whole different story. So, in any case. It's a terrible story that actually has to do with something we're going to talk about later in Nothing Personal that involves the New Orleans Saints and the Catholic Church. So I think you know where I'm going. But in any case, a new brand, a different brand for the owner, the team, and the garden. That's like saying that the Marlins are totally separate from me or from Marlins Park or from Jeffrey Loria, the owner when I was there. We're not separate. We're all completely intertwined. You cannot talk to someone about the New York Knicks who doesn't have an opinion about the owner and about the fact that the owner has made it so the Knicks are an organization that's become a laughingstock. You have to address that issue. The way the Knicks are trying to address it is by having distance. So the meeting goes something like this. I would like very much to work for the Knicks. Here's my pitch. The retainer is going to be about twenty grand a month, plus another fee on top of that for all the campaigns we're going to do. And here's my plan. The first thing we're going to do is make sure that everybody knows that the Knicks are a strong brand right now. 18,000 people plus coming to games, despite the fact that they cannot win in the playoffs, despite the fact that they make bad personnel decisions, despite the fact that big-time free agents will not come play for the Knicks. Despite all that, the Knicks brand building... 18000 a game, corporate sponsorship revenue, terrific. Let's hold that on the left. In the center, we've got Madison Square Garden, the greatest arena in the world. That's its own brand. We do concerts. We do shows. We have Billy Joel once a month. We're getting Elton John to come by. We've got the circus without the elephants. We've got Disney on ice, all sorts of great things. Leave that. Now let's put Jim Dolan over here on the right side. Owner, musician. Philanthrop, leave him alone. Am I hired? Well, I think we're going to change the logo. Then I think we're going to get alums involved, make sure they don't have to sit near Dolan so they don't get kicked out of the facility. Then I think we're going to look at uniform adjustments. And then what I want to do is a commercial campaign that brings back the old-time Knicks from Walt Frazier and Earl Monroe, Patrick Ewing, John Starks. And I want to show the continuity of greatness that this franchise has had. We're not going to talk about the fact they haven't won a championship since 1973, because when you're rebranding, you ignore the negativity. You focus only on the perceived positives. That, again, more absolute delusion. So we're going to put the entire campaign together. It's all going to work out fine. Jim, stay in your corner. Knicks, we've got you covered. Garden, we're totally going to keep you here as the greatest arena. Translation Agency. I'll translate something. Until the Knicks start winning games, you can do anything you want in the rebranding. You can have them wear tank tops, long sleeve shirts, short sleeve shirts. You can have them go with no shorts at all. And guess what? Nothing will change. You've got to start winning games. Well, Louis Rojas. So the Mets are in the news. That's our the third of the trifecta. I call it a triptych. And art, you know what a triptych is? When you look at a painting on the wall and it's in three parts, but it's in, one, it's in one frame, but in three parts, that's called a triptych. So this is the third part of my New York triptych. And it involves my favorite team. No, they're not my favorite, but they're fine. The New York Mets. You may say, I get a few people to tweet at me at David P. Sampson. Want to know, am I too hard on the Mets? These are New Yorkers, I assume. The answer is no, I'm not too hard on the Mets because what I'm doing is I'm decoding for you as a Mets fan what's really happening. I'm explaining why when Brody Van Wagenen opens his mouth, there's a good chance it's not worth listening to. And we found a way to get back at you today. Louis Rojas, the new Mets manager, why did they need a new manager? Remember, they fired Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran, the only person named in the sign stealing scandal who was a player at the time of the scandal with the Astros in 2017. The Mets had no choice but to fire Beltran. And so they did, except they called it, remember, the mutually parting of ways? I think you do. So then they went on and interviewed a bunch of people and they stayed internally with Luis Rojas. In announcing him, or in basically remember, Brody leaked the fact that he was negotiating a long term multi year deal here at CBS Sports HQ. If you're watching right now, we had to go with it's a report. Reports say that Louis Rojas will be the next met manager. And I said, I mean, what do I know? I'm not in charge of anything, barely nothing personal when you've got Coke in your left ear and in your nightmares every day. I didn't understand. That's not a report. Brody Van Wagenen said we are finalizing a deal with Louis Rojas to be our manager. It's not like it came from a writer who doesn't really have a true connection without a leak. This came from the actual GM. It wasn't a report. So here's why they hired Rojas. I was waiting for the quotes and boy, BVW delivered again. Thank you so much for the baseball content in the lead up to the Super Bowl. He said... He's respected by the players, he's trusted by the players, and he's someone that we have great confidence in his ability to lead our team now, and his ability to put our players and put us in the best position to succeed. He's very, very well qualified. We anticipate him to be a great addition to our team, He has the ability to be consistent, calm under pressure, and understand this opportunity that we have as we head into 2020. Who wrote that for you, Brody? Was that the spoken word? I assume so, because in writing, you would never refer to Luis Rojas as a that. People are whose. I've said it 50 times on this show. Maybe the executives will finally learn how to talk and write. But if you felt this way about Luis Rojas, why was he not your manager to start with? Why was he not your second choice? Why was he someone who was never talked about other than as a candidate? And now all of a sudden you're telling us that this is someone who the players trust? Bingo. That's the most important line of his quote. Brody Van Wagen and the Mets had players going public, Marcus Stroman going public about his distaste for Carlos Beltran, his excitement over what it would be to face the Astros and to let them know that he doesn't appreciate that he was getting shelled in Houston. It's the very reason why Beltran couldn't be the manager. They couldn't hire anyone who is associated in any way with this scandal. He's trusted by the players. Forget the fact, the confidence, forget all those lines. Forget the very, very well qualified because that's written, that's sort of in your, in your hard drive under what to say when you hire someone. Actually, we hired someone who's not very, very well qualified. Let me know when you ever hear someone describe you that way after you've been hired or when a coach or a GM or a player or anyone is signed or, or hired where the word is he is not very, very well qualified. I'll wait for that. It'll be like waiting for Godot, I assume. We think he has the ability to be consistent. What does he mean by that? What does Brody mean? To be consistent. We think that Louis Rojas will be calm. He will take direction from the front office. He will continue to have a relationship with the players. And he will keep the seat hot for when we undergo another managerial search at the end of the year. Don't be fooled by the fact that they gave him a two-year deal. I guarantee you the value of his deal. If I were hiring Louis Rojas as manager, he's getting the minimum I need to give to be a manager. Let's say 400 grand. He should be the lowest paid manager in all of baseball. That's nothing against Rojas or the fact that he's an Alou, the son of Felipe Alou. It has nothing to do with that. This is someone that you are basically bringing from a quality control coach on your coaching staff. You are giving him a promotion to be manager. He doesn't deserve a million dollars a year, two, three million dollars a year. We're watching salaries for managers go down and down and down. Why? Because their utility is going down and down as analytics takes on a bigger role in in in-game moves. I'm not going to digress at this moment except to tell you if you think for one minute that the front office is not involved with in-game moves and with the dugout during the game, then you are literally In la la land, like Tweety birds flying around your head, Emma Stone singing with Ryan Gosling, that type of la la land. So Rojas making 400 grand. They give him a two year deal so the players keep quiet. Players don't like playing for a lame duck manager. Fine. Guess what? After the 2020 season, it will be no problem to reassign him back to either quality control. I know about making someone a manager who may not be ready to be a manager and what you have to do after that person's done managing and bring them back into the position they were in. It doesn't necessarily go smoothly. However, that's what will happen after this season. Now, what the Mets fans are saying to me, what Jeff Wilpon is saying as well, He grew up with baseball in his blood. His family is baseball royalty. He's fully prepared for this exciting opportunity. I can hardly contain myself with that ridiculous quote. But what happens if by chance the Mets play in October? That is the only possibility that Rojas has of fulfilling the second year of his contract. One possibility, and that is playing in the playoffs. It's not going to happen. Not my way to see, but I assure you it's not going to happen. So you want to talk to Sampson. I like it. I like this one. Uh, I have a Twitter account at David P. Sampson. What I'd like you to do is DM me, which means direct message. So I keep my direct messages open to the public. I try to respond to as many as I can. Um, If you drop an F bomb, it doesn't mean I won't respond. It just means I'll, I'll smile. If you spell my name wrong, it doesn't mean I won't respond, but it likely will be with the fact that there's no P in my name only after the D in David and before the S in Samson. Someone said to me, hey, can you discuss some superstitions that you've witnessed in baseball? What a great topic the topic of superstitions in baseball. Thank you very much for sending that. So you want to talk to Samson. I can only assume you were watching Half Baked when you wrote it because some of the superstitions are quite funny. You heard about Wade Boggs, who used to be a good player many years ago. Hall of Famer. He would eat fried chicken before every game. That's sort of fun and exciting, but I got better ones. Joe Borowski. Check him out. We signed him to a one-year deal to be a closer before we thought to sign closers to multi-year deals. This was back when we had hugely successful closers year after year. Reclaim. We would call them reclaims. Am I allowed to say this on the air? I'm going to say it. This is how we describe players. When we had a player who had had a horrific season prior, but who showed some promise, has decent stuff, decent career, they're called a reclaim. And we would have room in our budget every year. We'd want a reclaim. Someone who there's a chance to hit it big with. You see many teams signing these veterans. You see like the Neil Walkers of the world, the Curtis Grandersons of the world. They're reclaims because they're no longer playing the way they used to play. And you may get something out of them that would enable you to either perform with them or trade them at the deadline. Joe Borowski was a reclaim. Brought him in, pitcher, pitched for the Cubs before us. He had a superstition. He's the only player I ever saw like it. Before every game, Joe Borowski was a pretty buff guy. He was totally hairless. I don't know if he got lasered. I don't know if he got waxed like Steve Carell in the 40-year-old virgin. I really never asked him because it didn't matter. But Joe Borowski would walk around the clubhouse before a game completely naked, covered in powder from neck to toe. Like he would powder his entire body. And I mean entire body. I'm talking the entire body. And it would always be funny because none of the players, we wouldn't want to be near him because you were obviously, if you're in the swing radius, you've got a problem. But the other problem is you're in the powder radius. And the powder radius for Borowski was significant. But he had to do it. And he had a great year for us. Great guy, by the way. That's a funny superstition. Ugueth Urbina had a superstition long before he took a machete and tried to kill someone. And then his superstition was likely keeping his eyes open even when he slept because he was in prison in Venezuela. He's a guy we traded for to help us win a World Series. Traded Adrian Gonzalez to get him. Would do it again. Got a ring. Mostly because of Urbina. Urbina had a superstition. He could not play in a game until he had taken a nap on the training table. That was his thing. If We didn't let him nap in the training, on the training table. Forget the fact that we had to use the training tables for other activities. We had players who had to actually get taped up. We had players who actually had injuries. Ugi Urbina had to lie on the training table. He kept it at a bit of an angle, as though he were getting treatment like sitting up in a chair, and he would be out like a light. This is sort of a violation of the So You Want to Talk to Samson because I don't know that it was a superstition as much as it was a requirement. I had an expo when I started in baseball with the Expos. Orlando Cabrera, if you're listening to this, don't you dare deny this because you are the number one superstition we had. You had to watch a movie before every game. Do you remember going into a private room in the clubhouse at Olympic Stadium and watching a movie. And this is before iPads, I assure you. Do you remember how the door had to be closed? Except sometimes we'd sneak in to watch over your shoulder, but making sure it was only at good times? Orlando Cabrera. He had to watch a certain kind of movie before he played. It sort of made him feel better. (laughs) I like that. We have guys who have superstitions with food, with planes, where they sit, where they sit in the dugout. We had a, uh, a first base coach, He's, uh, His name is Perry Hill, one of the best infield defensive coaches you'll ever have. Ton of superstitions, where he would put tape in the dugout, where he had to sit in the dugout, where people sit on planes. There's all sorts of, of superstitions, I would say, that players have or coaches have or executives have. Do you know I had one? I'll tell you what mine was. Every time we won a game, I would make sure that I drove to the stadium the exact same way. So there are different ways to get to 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 get to stadiums. There's different things that you do, whether you're on the road or at home, and I would always do everything exactly the same. There are players who actually wear the same clothes to the ballpark if they're on a hitting streak. There are players who wear the same underwear. I've seen that before. I've seen players who don't want their clothes cleaned, but we do. I've seen players who have certain meals. If they get three hits, they eat the meal in the same order. I've seen players who do certain things in the shower if they've had a good game. Baseball and superstitions go back. They go all the way back. I've seen some funny ones. Thank you. You wanted to talk to Samson. You heard about baby powder and some movie watching. I guarantee you Orlando Cabrera was not watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's for sure. Well, I'm going to review it. I've been reviewing movies recently because it's Oscar time, but I can't take another minute without getting you to watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. We've talked about the show, but I want to talk about season three, and I want to talk about what it is when something does not grab you immediately in this immediate gratification society where if you're not hooked by the first page of a book or the first two minutes of a show or a movie, you shut it down. You walk out. Well, I want to tell you that in Mrs. Maisel, I almost did it. The third season, I'm committed to the show. It's brilliant. It wins awards. Tony Shalhoub, brilliant as her father. Rachel Brosnahan, Alex Bornstein. You're talking a quality of cast and the humor of a 1950s show where people think you have to be Jewish to laugh at it or enjoy it. But I've seen more non-Jews laugh at it than Jews. It's not like inside jokes. It's not like they're speaking Yiddish all the time. And when they are, you can pretend you know what it is because you're still laughing about a joke that happened prior. And it's not really like stand-up, even though she is a stand-up comedian in this. The jokes and the laughter and the humor come from the situations they find themselves in. The 50s are just a backdrop. Well, season three takes place in Miami. They actually had a casting call here locally. They were filming at the Fountain Blue Hotel, and they wanted extras. I happened to not be around. I would love to have been an extra just to bask in the glow that is Mrs. Maisel. But in season three, the first three episodes were brutal. I couldn't get through them. It was like they had taken their awards and all the extra budget they had, and they did these episodes that instead of focusing on the characters and the perfect dialogue, they were doing all these big dancing scenes with all these extras, like showing off the fact that they had more money to spend on each episode. But instead of giving up, I stayed with it, where the majority of people would say no mas. I stayed with it, and God was there a payoff. Get through the first three episodes and part of the fourth. And the last three and a half episodes are vintage, pun intended. They are perfect. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, season one, unbelievable. Season two puts a tear in your eye. You're so happy. Season three, you're disappointed. And then you see the last four episodes and you say, excuse me, when's season four coming? Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You've got it. Okay. We're getting back now to uh, a serious conversation. And the reason that we're doing that is uh, something came out today and it's, uh, it's a problem. And I'm going to tell you about it and tell you why it happened and then what to do. So you're all very well aware of the issues that are with the Catholic church. You're aware of the pedophilia you're aware of the fact that priests have a habit of being sexual predators with little boys as their prey. I think that's clear. I think it's also clear that the church has really not done enough. their movies, their documentaries, and there's just using your brain where you can figure out the church has not, this is not a religious topic. Right now, the guys at CBS, they've got their fingers on the ledge, like they're saying, oh my God, we're ready to cut the feed. Don't worry. I'm not promoting pedophilia. And I'm not going against Catholicism. I'm going to get it to sports. Hang on. What I'm explaining is that there has been a pattern, a pattern of PR problems within the Catholic Church, a pattern of what to do when you are trying to hold a religion together, when you've got an antiquated system of communicating, when you've got unrealistic vows and expectations upon the people within your church. And now, you have an even bigger problem because as years have passed, you've got people getting angrier and angrier that nothing is being done to basically take care of the men in the church who have committed these heinous crimes. Here come the sports. Get ready. Everything's fine. I see, I see the executives walking toward me. <laughs> Keep coming. Hey, just shut the camera off and I'll be done. What do you think of the button open? I'm wearing my button all the way closed on my shirt today. Um, if you're not watching, I appreciate that you're downloading and subscribing, but normally I wear the first top button closed, but now the top top button open, now it's closed. And I'm, having, I'm getting overheated talking about this conversation because it makes me so angry. In New Orleans, there is a, a bishop or a cardinal, it doesn't matter what he's called, he's in the church, and he's about 85 years old, and he has basically had a lifetime of abuse. Kids as young as seven years old are getting abused by this man. Well, the Catholic Church has a PR department, it turns out. Obviously one of the worst PR departments in history because the first thing you do when you have an issue like this is you get rid of the offending parties. But God forbid they do that. Pun intended. So in New Orleans, they said, you know what? Let's see if we can use the PR department of a company who knows how to deal with PR. Oh, I've got it. Gail Benson is a huge supporter of the Catholic Church. Gail Benson is the owner of the New Orleans Pelicans and the New Orleans Saints. She got it from her husband, Tom. Best way to own a team is when your husband dies, I guess. So she now owns two teams. The Catholic Church. She's a huge donor to the Catholic Church. In the M, not in the T or the H. In the millions. Not the thousands or hundreds. Huge donor. The Catholic Church of New Orleans, the diocese in New Orleans, calls up Benson, who's making huge donations, and finds out, hey, how do I get PR help here? And then Gail Benson did something that is inexcusable that I would never allow to happen with any team that I was the president of. She made her internal PR department work with the Catholic Church to figure out PR plans public relations statements, conferences, wordings, sentences that the church could use to ease the PR mess it found itself in because of what these men had done to the boys. So the PR department of the New Orleans Saints was forced to interact with the Catholic Church. I guarantee you, Gail Benson, what was going on behind your back was despondency that the owner had walked in and made the PR people do this. You think your chief communications officer wanted to send emails back and forth to the Catholic Church outlining what they would do in order to have everything sound better? You think the managers, directors, and interns in that department who are a part of drafting any sort of messages, thousands of emails, you think that they wanted to do that? They're a sports team. They should be publicizing your team on the field, your players off the field, and you're having them do your personal business. When that personal business puts the D in dirty, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. But now they're even worse. The New Orleans Saints have gone to court because they do not want the emails going public that went back and forth with the Catholic Church and the Diocese in New Orleans. They are actually suing to make sure that these emails will be kept private. Of course, all the media outlets want the emails to become public. They view in the terms of public records that a sports team is a public entity where there is a right for the public to know exactly how involved the Saints were. Well, there are thousands of emails, and I can tell you exactly what those emails do. The PR Department of the Saints helps the church say exactly what the church should be saying to victims, to court claims, to lawsuits, all in the name of protecting the church and protecting the heinous criminals who molested these boys. And you wonder why the saints want to keep it private? I don't. I hope the courts do the right thing. I'm glad this is getting the attention. It is going to be a very, very interesting case. My guess is there is a settlement and there will be redacted emails. That's my favorite is when we get to see redacted emails. Remember that movie we we reviewed here called The Report in Washington where everything was so redacted that you can't see anything but a few pronouns and adverbs? Well, what's under the redaction is the help that the Saints should never have been asked to give by their owner, Gail Benson. It's an outrage. Kawhi Leonard cannot catch a break. Kawhi Leonard is, uh, you know, he was hurt in San Antonio. I'm fine with that. He wanted his own doctor. I've seen players do it. I'm not sure the Spurs handled it right. He missed a bunch of games and he orchestrated his exit. It seems impossible for me to talk about Kawhi Leonard and the Clippers after that last segment. But I'm going to get back to sports. I want to give you this story. I'm definitely worked up. It is uh, it's pathetic, actually. And this problem makes me put everything in perspective as I'm thinking about it. We talk about sports. I want to entertain you. I want to give you information. I want you to have great thoughts about the show, nothing personal. I want you to download and subscribe and rate and review. I don't want to bring things that are too serious to your attention. But on the other hand, isn't that part of my job? You're going to say you're a sports pod, stick to sports, stick to baseball, stick to football and basketball. But when something comes out that I need you to know about, because I want you to make your own decision, whether you want to be outraged, what position you're going to take, I'm never asking you to agree with me. You never have to agree with me. I just don't want you to ignore it. Let's not be the type of sports fans who ignore the fact that there's an entire world out there. Let's not be the type of sports fans who take things that happen on and off the field as though it is life and death. It's entertainment. I'll tell you what life and death is. Crime, pedophilia, rape, sexual abuse, domestic abuse. That's actual life and death. What Kawhi Leonard does, that's not life and death. It's just a pain in the ass. And that's what Kawhi Leonard is, except he's the nicest, sweetest gentleman in the world. He just doesn't want to talk to you. He doesn't want to communicate with teammates. I've had players like this who lead on the field only. They don't want to have team meetings. They don't want to take the microphone. Remember, Kawhi Leonard learned from Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich, the king of the non-answer when he's interviewed. I think Kawhi Leonard has a terrific personality. The fact that he engineered his way out of the Spurs and onto the Raptors, that's fine. He won a championship with him. The fact that he didn't stay in Toronto, let's be real. Did you actually think he was going to stay in Toronto? There was zero chance he was staying in Toronto. So then he moves to L.A., which is great. He manufactures Paul George to come. The Clippers, who won 48 games last year, 14 games over, they make the playoffs. They win two games from Golden State in the first round when Golden State was actually a good team when they had Clay and Durant and Curry and Draymond, et cetera their streak of finals. Now they're on the Clippers. The Clippers are now a championship favorite, but there's discord in the locker room. What is the discord in the locker room? I'm going to explain it to you. It's coming from players who don't like the fact that Leonard and George are treated differently. They don't like the fact that Kawhi Leonard gets to sit out games. Injury management. Remember, beginning of nothing personal, previous episodes, we talked load management, injury management. This is a major problem right now. If you're a Laker fan, you're loving this. But I'm a Doc Rivers fan. And I know that Doc Rivers is going to do the right thing in leading this Clippers team. That's the coach. He is going to meet his team, which he did, and he'll keep doing it. And he's going to make sure that all of these little smatterings of public discourse, that there's issues in the clubhouse, he's going to shut them down. Because when Doc Rivers says to zip it, the players are going to zip it. The players know that above all, they need to present a united front. Don't show weakness. If you have a problem with the way we're treating Kawhi Leonard, if you have a problem with the fact that he's not playing every day, but you have to, you talk to me in the front office. I'm going to explain to you the fact that we've got to do this because we care about May and June, not every single regular season game. Some people are the soldiers who go every day. Some are the ones who go every three days. Some are the ones who go once a week. But you need all types in order to win battles. The Clippers are going to be just fine. But it is interesting to note that when you treat players differently off the court, then you've got a problem that even a Hall of Fame coach like Doc Rivers can handle. The Clippers don't let Kawhi Leonard sit in a better seat on a plane. They don't give him a different chair in the clubhouse the way Barry Bonds did in the Giants clubhouse. He had this recliner while the rest of the people had folding chairs. They don't give him different food in the kitchen than the other players get. You have to treat your superstars the same as your players, except when you're dealing with on-field and on-court issues, then exceptions are, should, can, and will be made. Pick of the day. If you're not making money off me on pick of the day, I I, I don't know what to tell you. I just don't. I, I give you winners every night. I told you the Trailblazers last night I had no chance with the Mavericks. I'm sticking with the NBA. We're up to seven five and one this year, which is a which is better. I think we were zero and three at once or zero and five. I got a good pick today, and it is these Clippers. I love when the Clippers have problems, when any team who's really good has a little bit of public issue, a little bit of public scrutiny, some of their dirty laundry gets aired out in public. Take them the next game. I'm not worried that they're giving three against the Heat or two and a half, three, whatever the line is. I'm not worried the Heat have the best team, home team, home record in the NBA. Not worried at all. I actually think they're going to implode tonight. Jimmy Butler very much wanted to be a starter in the NBA. and he was not voted to be a starter, not named one of the 10 starters. I think he's going to be grumpy. I think Leonard is going to have a great game to make sure that all of his teammates remember that if they want jewelry, they better get on his back. We're taking the Clippers. Stay with me. Prop bet of the day. We're doing Super Bowl prop bets. We do them every day. For the last few days, we're going to keep track until next Friday, last one, and we're going to see how we do. Now, I had a fight off air with Coke on this prop of the day because he said, how would you ever take a prop bet that's minus 400 to win 100? The question is, will there be a missed extra point? There's not going to be a missed extra point. Now, granted, it's a little harder than it used to be, but I'm willing to bet 400 to win 100 that there will be no missed extra point in the Super Bowl. You're saying to me, but no, is, if there is, you get plus 250. But I'm still going to lose the 100. And we've got a bunch of pluses our first two or three days giving you prop bets. This is my first lay. <laughs> That's funny. Meaning this is the first time we are laying money in order to win 100. So minus 400, there will not be a missed extra point. Okay, wait to see. God, I'm jealous of the NBA. They get it right. The All-Star voting was a whole thing with MLB. First it was ballots and hanging chads, then we went online, and then now with there's finalists in MLB where there's a second round of voting for starters, it's a whole song and dance. The NBA, you vote and then you name captains, and then the captains get to pick out of the voted starters, there're 10 of them, 8 cuz LeBron and Giannis are two of them. You actually get to vote And for the starters, but then the players choose their team. It's not Eastern Conference versus Western Conference, American League versus National League. It's whoever LeBron wants against whoever Giannis wants out of the pool of starters. Everyone in this office, in this studio has told me there is no chance LeBron does a first pick with anyone other than AD. Hell yeah! That's why my wait to see is the opposite. When LeBron drafts, and you're going to see it February 6th, maybe, he is going to draft Luka with his first pick. And then he'll look at AD and say, come on, AD, you know better than that. I love you, brother. Because this, to me, LeBron, this was definitely business. It was nothing personal. It's happening
0: daily. MyPatriotSupply.com